Throughout the 1980s, a strange phenomenon was sweeping North America. They were in a panic. And like people in a panic, they want solutions. Allegations of underground satanic cults torturing and terrorizing children. The thing is, there were no satanic cults preying on children. And nearly 30 years later, the people touched by it all are still picking up the pieces. This isn't a work of fiction. This is a work of history. Satanic Panic, available now. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Nala Ayed. Welcome to Ideas. To paraphrase Michelle Obama, pandemics don't make your character, they reveal it. That's true of individuals. It's also true of societies. There is no previous record anywhere of a pestilence so severe and so destructive to human life. Roughly 2,400 years ago, the ancient Greek world was shaken to the core by a devastating pandemic. It simply pulled the rug out from under the city by overturning all of the citizens' usual expectations from life. The bodies of those dying were heaped on each other, and in the streets and around the springs, half-dead people reeled about in a desperate desire for water. Thucydides was an Athenian general who chronicled great political speeches of his day, the massacres and minutia of military strategy within a war that raged across the Greek world for 27 years. Overwhelmed by the disaster, people could not see what was to become of them and started losing respect for laws of God and man alike. His account of the Peloponnesian War set a clear standard for accuracy in reporting. And what makes his work all the more powerful is his careful and enduring observations on politics and the human condition. Thucydides has an extraordinary intellect and is able to put words together with great power. I think his unblinking intelligence is at its best when he's giving an account of extreme situations. Extreme situations like the Great Plague of Athens, which he describes in just a few short pages, buried within what comes to a roughly 500-page account of the Peloponnesian War. I speak as someone who had the disease myself. Civilization is a very thin veneer. Under even slight amounts of pressure, that civilized order, that social contract, starts to break down. This is our second episode on Thucydides and his relevance for us today. Ideas producer Nikola Lukšić zeroes in on lessons from the plague of Athens. Back in 430 BC, Athens was the place to be. Imagine a pulsing city brimming with optimism, culture, and restless ambition. It was precisely at that time that Athens was at its peak. It was the greatest city of the Eastern Mediterranean, at the head of a far-flung empire, secured by its invincible navy. Clifford Orwin teaches political science and classics at the University of Toronto. 
He's the author of a book called The Humanity of Thucydides. It was the greatest commercial hub of its day, to which goods flowed from the entire Mediterranean. Not only was Athens powerful, it was stunning. The Parthenon and Acropolis had just been built, and the arts were flourishing. It was the intellectual center of the Greek world. Anyone who was anyone, intellectually speaking, passed through attracting audiences and students. Among Thucydides' contemporaries, their pretty much his exact contemporary was Socrates. There were impressive festivals for all the gods in which all the citizens participated. Last but not least, there was the buzzing democratic political life of the city. As the entire citizenry assembled to make life and death decisions, about the great war with Sparta and its allies then underway. On the other hand, Athens was a pre-modern city, which is to say that it was, by our standards, filthy right, and insalubrious. Right, There was no public sanitation. Water was scarce. The city was terribly overcrowded. Um, the city was filled with people whom we would understand as homeless. All of these refugees who'd come in from the countryside, didn't have houses of their own, didn't have relatives with whom they could stay, and who therefore simply lived in such open spaces as there were in the city, including even the sacred precincts of the gods, which became, um, which became filled with the homeless. The Spartan army had attacked the Athenian countryside, forcing a wave of refugees to flee to the city. The population within the city walls swelled to nearly 300,000. And at that point, no one could have imagined that about a third of the population would die from the plague. You had people crowded together in poor sanitary conditions. You had people on the move, people who had been on the move. And so in some ways, they were sort of set up for this, for this plague to strike. Catherine Kalaitis is resident scholar at the National Hellenic Museum in Chicago. One of the most haunting parts of the account to me is Thucydides saying that before the plague struck, it was a good year, right? There wasn't much disease. And as the plague struck, it struck very suddenly. People assumed this was some kind of Spartan plot. And then it spread like wildfire through the community. The mysterious and devastating disease first took hold in Athens' port of entry and spread from there. There is no previous record anywhere of a pestilence so severe and so destructive to human life. The physicians were not able to help at its outset since they were treating it in ignorance. Indeed, they themselves suffered the highest mortality since they were the ones most exposed to it. Whatever supplications people made at sanctuaries and whatever oracles they consulted, all were useless, and in the end they abandoned them, defeated by the affliction. When it got to Athens, it struck the city suddenly. I will leave it to others, whether physicians or laypeople, to speak from their own knowledge about it and say what its likely origins were and what factors could be powerful enough to generate such disruptive effects. Thucydides describes how the plague comes out of Ethiopia, spreads through Egypt, through the Persian Empire. It seems to go very quickly. And it arrives in Athens, he says, um, like a sudden fall. Kinch Hoekstra is Chancellor Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of California, Berkeley. 
He's written several books of political philosophy, including Thucydides and the Politics of Necessity. Not only did they not have the the kind of uh, palliative medicine that we have for pain and suffering, they also had, uh, especially because of this crowding in in conditions of wartime, they had poor hygiene, poor um, housing, and uh, no real way of keeping distance. And Thucydides was there to witness the plague as it struck. And he set about describing the horror as accurately as possible. I speak as someone who had the disease myself and witnessed others suffering from it. So yes, Thucydides did catch the plague and was one of the few who managed to recover. But he's careful not to make a big deal about his own personal experience. He was more interested in observing and recording the experience of others around him. So there's a kind of dispassionate clinical precision, but the effect of that dispassionate clinical precision is simply to emphasize just how terrible the symptoms of the plague were. And then one might say the same thing for his description of the psychological and political consequences, which follows. For my part, I will say what it was like as it happened and will describe the facts that would allow anyone investigating any future outbreak to have some prior knowledge and recognize it. The victims passed through a number of stages, but they passed through them very rapidly. Each of the stages was terrible. Each stage was possibly fatal. But it seems from Thucydides' description that most of the victims withstood the first stages of the plague and died only in one of the last stages. But again, um, this is over a period of a week or 10 days. We're not talking about a prolonged ordeal. We're talking about a very brief but agonizing ordeal. Suddenly, people who were previously healthy were affected by sensations of violent fever in the head and a redness and inflammation of the eyes. Internally, both the throat and the tongue immediately became bloody and emitted an unnatural and foul-smelling breath. The disease starts in the head and kind of travels down. We might imagine it like uh, how a head cold then moves down into a chest cold. Set of sneezing and hoarseness, and soon afterwards, the affliction went to the chest. He says it began with a violent fever in the head, with inflamed red eyes, bloody throat and tongue. And then it went into the chest. There was violent coughing. Then it took hold in the stomach. And uh, as he puts it, every kind of bile that has been named by physicians was discharged. Caused severe upset. And every kind of bile that had been named by physicians was discharged. In most cases, an empty retching ensued, producing violent spasms. In some cases, straight after the emissions had ceased, and others much later. That produced a great vomiting, which ended up in a kind of uh, dry heaving, great spasms of of the body. And then things got bad. Externally, the body was reddish and livid, breaking out in small blisters and sores. 
Uh, the fiercest symptom probably was the feeling of extreme fever. He says the sufferers were on fire. Internally, sufferers were on fire. And they couldn't bear contact with even the lightest kind of clothing. What they really wanted to do was throw themselves into cold water. And what they most felt like was throwing themselves into cold water. Thucydides reports that many of them did throw themselves into the tanks that were reserved for collecting rainwater. He did so, jumping into rain tanks, possessed by a thirst that could not be quenched. Among the most dreadful symptoms of the plague was the one that one simply couldn't stay still. One was driven to frantic activity. Uh, people were overwhelmed by thirst that couldn't be slaked. They were overwhelmed by heat that couldn't be cooled. So there was the complete, complete destruction of any possibility of tranquility. The bit I found the most disturbing is the, the bit about the half-dead people reeling around, desperate for water. It's just nightmarish, it sounds like. Yes, yes. Nightmarish is a good way of describing it. And it doesn't stop there. And then things got bad. It then descends into the bowels, the intestines, where it caused ulceration and acute diarrhea. And many were so weakened from that that they died. Uh, but if you survive that, then it went to the extremities. The illness spread through the whole body. Even with the loss of their extremities, the genitals, the fingers and toes. It struck the genitals and the fingers and toes. Loss of the eyes and so on. And many people escaped its clutches only with the loss of those parts. Some suffered a total loss of memory straight after their recovery and no longer knew who they themselves or their friends were. It's no surprise that after this description, Thucydides says that it exceeded all description, the nature of this disease. The form of the plague defied all reason. And when it attacked anyone, it was beyond all human endurance. It was beyond all human endurance. Some died from neglect, others despite devoted care. The most terrible thing of all was the sense of despair when someone realized that they were suffering from it. For then they immediately decided in their own minds that the outcome was hopeless, and they were much more likely to give themselves up to it rather than resist. And why would he find that even more disturbing than all of the other bits of horrific description? Well, as someone who himself survived the plague... Right, he would have been keenly aware that survival was possible, not likely, but possible. And therefore, it was very distressing that the citizens of a proud city like Athens, right, which had fought off the Persian invaders, you know, which had, was fighting off the Spartan invaders, um, should the word that he uses for, for despondency, athumia, lack of thumos. Thumos is a Greek word which could be translated various ways, but one way of understanding it is that it's the something like heart or gumption or fight. Canadians would say grit. Thumos. The idea is that a person's character, their grit, is the basis for any functioning collective. And without that grit, there's no hope for the future, and everything begins to unravel. 
There was also the fact that one person would get infected as the result of caring for another. So they died in droves, like sheep. And this caused more deaths than anything else. The Athenians faced an agonizing decision, right? There, was no, there were no organized institutions of care in ancient Athens. People were charged with the care of their own families, basically, their families, their extended families, since kinship was very important. And it was on one, the care of one's fellow kinsmen that one therefore relied. So either one could remain in one's own house and to that extent be safer from the plague than if one ventured out, or one could venture out to help one's afflicted kinfolk. And Thucydides says that especially those citizens who made virtue their concern or who laid claim to virtue, as he puts it, would have been ashamed to be sparing in their care for their kinfolk. So they did leave their houses to nurse their afflicted kinfolk in the hopes that this might help them survive the plague. But the result of that, he said, was, of course, a much higher mortality rate among those who tried to help. It was clear that contact led to communication of the disease, but all of their instincts were that courage and nobility and fellow feeling, sociability, bonds of friendship, family bonds, all of these things pushed them to take care of one another and visit with one another and so on. Um, and either of these things led to miserable existence and a, and a, and a miserable death. So the very act of showing compassion would lead you to a painful and likely inevitable death. Yes. They, it, the feeling for your fellow human beings or a sense of your own character, the idea that you weren't going to be a coward, you were going to show that you were courageous and were unbowed by this kind of affliction, led very likely to your own death, but could also lead to the death of others with whom you had contact. And what do you make of that uh, that paradox? To some extent, I think it's a, a paradox that's a paradox in the nature of the event. So our social codes and our codes of social the social virtues are developed in the context of normal experience when we can go see one another without our, the simple act of speaking with one another or embracing one another being deadly to them or to us. When those parameters are shifted so dramatically as they are in the plague, then suddenly the virtues are in question. This is, is the same thing that the virtue had required uh, still going to be required in these kinds of circumstances. And Thucydides gives us the pretty clear answer that the virtues are no longer uh, apt for these circumstances. That's deeply unsettling. <laughs> it is, yes. Yes. 
And that unsettling but necessary breaking of social bonds was the first thing to signal the unfurling of other core social values, like those around burials. Burial practices were of the utmost importance to the Greeks. To bury one's relatives and fellow citizens was a fundamental requirement of sacred law. After a battle, the losing side had to seek a truce to recover the bodies for burial, because if it did not do that, it would have failed in a fundamental duty to the fallen comrades. With the plague, however, as in certain hotspots of the COVID virus today, the number of deaths far outstrips society's capacity for a dignified disposal of the bodies. Because of the shortage of funeral pyres and coffins, Athenians actually came to blows over them, as bodies flew every which way and as piles of bodies rotted unburied, prey to the dogs and vultures. So there could be no sign, right, of the, of the utmost disorder and decline of society more graphic and conspicuous than this one. The bodies of those dying were heaped on each other, and in the streets and around the springs, half-dead people reeled about in a desperate desire for water. Overwhelmed by the disaster, people could not see what was to become of them and started losing respect for laws of God and man alike. Started losing respect for laws of God and man alike. Um, what does it say about the human condition when this kind of anarchy breaks out? I think what it says about the human condition is that for the vast majority of us, decency depends on certain expectations. And once those expectations are reversed, anything goes. Right? And he says specifically that honor and shame no longer served to restrain human beings because they no longer expected to live long enough to gain honor through honorable actions, right? That somehow honorable life, if you understand it as for most people, largely life of concern with their reputation presupposes that they'll live long enough to have a reputation, right? We'll live long enough so that reputation will matter, uh, live long enough so that it will matter what others think of them. But the plague completely upset that expectation. And similarly, he says, fear of gods and fear of law of man, there was none, because as far as fear of gods was concerned, they saw that the same fate befell the pious and the impious alike. And so far as fear of the laws of man, no one expected to live long enough to be brought to trial or to be punished. And he then says two very interesting things about honor and about law. About honor, he says that what was pleasant or promoted present pleasure, came to be regarded as both pleasant and honorable. In other words, it wasn't that honor simply disappeared, but that it became inverted as a result of the plague. And what, was, what would formerly have been thought dishonorable was now thought honorable, right? I mean, people who persisted in what was formerly thought to be honorable now seem to be wimps. They now seem to be fools or chumps, Whereas those who indulged in present pleasure now seem to be doing the honorable or the, or the noble thing. 
Again, there was such an inversion of people's judgments as a result of the plague. They came to admire the very hedonism which they had previously despised. It was first the plague that led to other forms of lawlessness in the city, too. People were emboldened to indulge themselves in ways they would previously have concealed. Neither fear of the gods nor law of man was any restraint. He doesn't say that they simply lost their sense of justice. What he says is that the punishment having already been decreed, it seemed only reasonable to enjoy life before it fell. So in other words, they saw the plague as justifying um, actions, their pathetic little crime sprees. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on RN, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. When faced with the complex moral questions the world tends to throw our way, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. My name is Waleed Ali. And I'm Scott Stevens. We're the hosts of The Minefield, an ABC Australia podcast. And each week we try to navigate the moral complexities of modern life in a way that's unexpected, unpredictable, intellectually serious, but more than a little fun. Along the way, we're joined by a range of philosophers and thinkers who promise to help you see the world and the challenges we face in a different light. You can listen to The Minefield wherever you get your podcasts. Back in 430 BC, a plague devastated the city of Athens. Tens of thousands of its citizens perished. A chronicler named Thucydides meticulously recorded the physical symptoms of the plague, setting what's been called the gold standard for plague narratives. Beyond describing the physical symptoms, Thucydides also captured a detailed picture of the psychological and social breakdown of a society. Until then, Athens had been a thriving metropolis that just days prior to the outbreak was riding high on its cultural and political achievements. The whole idea that Thucydides has in describing the disease and describing the social breakdown and so on and so forth is so that if something like it recurs again, we'll be better able to recognize it more quickly and understand what consequences may be about to come. That strikes me as an extraordinarily powerful prescriptive for where we find ourselves today. Lessons from the Plague of Athens, a plague that nearly decimated the entire city-state more than 2,000 years ago. The Greeks very much, I think, had this sense, the the ancient Athenians in particular, the idea that civilization is a very thin veneer and that under even slight amounts of pressure, that social contract starts to break down and people lose that veneer and that can be very dangerous. Now, for some people, they behave nobly in that moment. There's a sort of natural nobility that emerges. 
um, that isn't bound up in wanting the respect of the community that has sort of lost those values. But I think for other people, and I would argue for the vast majority of people, what happens is pretty barbaric. And people lose their sense of decency and the extent to which their moral behavior, and I'm using scare quotes, was ever existent. It's revealed to be the product of societal pressure. And when that societal pressure disappears, so does that, that moral behavior. And that, that's what I think is truly frightening is how well will society hold up? Um, in the face of the collapse of the of the social contract, while the situation we're dealing with now is uh, nowhere near to the extreme as they were dealing with, um, do you see evidence of that kind of instinct burbling up to the surface? I'm embarrassed to say it, but you know we've had I think two store clerks now, one for certain. Um, shot here in here in the United States because people didn't want to put on masks. Like shot um, and killed? Yes, a, a security, I believe a security card was killed in Michigan because the person didn't want to wear the mask in the store. Clearly that's that person's character, right? But we abide by all sorts. Of, let's say you think the masks are arbitrary and stupid. Clearly they're not because you're not an epidemiologist. But let's say you think they're stupid we abide by silly social rules all the time. And we don't get angry about it, most of us. And we don't, we certainly don't do violence because of it. And the idea that you think you can do that is frightening to me. And I think that has something to do with not just the ratcheting up of the rhetoric around the virus, but the ratcheting up of the rhetoric that was already going on in the society that fits the, 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 the kind of rhetoric then fits right into what's already happened, except there really is this scary thing lurking out there. And that is, I think, very dangerous. So very early on, for example, in February, when you saw um, hate crimes and vandalism happening in Chinatown in New York, for example, I think that's a similar pattern, right? There's, there's this kind of latent bigotry that already exists, and then the virus gives you an excuse to act on it. Hopefully, we don't descend to the place of Athens, but I think, I think these kind of moments of calamity do start to give people permission to act in ways that maybe they were restrained from before. And that should frighten all of us, I think. I think that's more frightening than a virus um, because you can't vaccinate against that and you can't socially distance against that. Yeah, even even less consequential things like, you know, going to a grocery store and people fighting over the last packet of toilet paper I mean, people were punching each other out for toilet paper. That's a thing that happened just recently. Or, you know, when I go to the when I go to the grocery store now, you know, people scream at each other for going the wrong direction down the aisle. You know, I think that's the product of a lot of things, but I think that that sort of breakdown of of the social mores is part of that. One of the things I love about history 
is that people don't change, events change, right? Technology changes, nations rise and fall, but people stay the same. So I think there's obvious similarities in the way that this epidemic or pandemic, this sort of public health crisis, comes in to an already troubled society, an already destabilized society in many ways. And certainly that's been my experience as an American. And it makes all of those things, all of the tensions, all of the ways in which society may not be working, it highlights those, right? It it really um, makes shockingly clear what's going wrong within your own society. The other thing I, I noticed that I had sort of forgotten, I think, and I noticed it as I was reading in preparation for, for our conversation, um, is the xenophobia that it stirs up, right? This fear of outsiders. Athens was a, was a fairly xenophobic society to begin with, parallel to much of, of what we see today. But, um, you know, Thucydides, for example, makes a point that the disease came from Ethiopia, right? Uh, that it was a foreign disease. Moreover, um, the, the comment, it's kind of a throwaway line, I feel a little bit, in it's his recounting of the plague. But when he mentions that when people initially start getting sick, there's a presumption that the Spartans have poisoned the wells. This idea that it was some sort of act of biological warfare, that their enemy was the one who had caused this, and trying to point to a human enemy for what is really a biological calamity. That really struck a chord with me, you know, including much of the rhetoric that's been here in the United States, um, from the White House even, um, regarding the Chinese and their role in the, in the beginnings of the pandemic. Why do you keep calling this the Chinese virus? It comes from China, that's why. This idea that this can't just be something that happened in nature, um, but that it, this is something that ha- it had to be a, a plot of our enemies, right? I think that's a very, it's a very interesting and very sad, but I think very human reaction. Pandemics reveal the fault lines of a society and also those of each individual. So to paraphrase Michelle Obama, pandemics don't make your character, they reveal it. Being president doesn't change who you are. No, it, it reveals who you are. You know, when Michelle Obama said it in the reference to the presidency, she was making the point that whoever you are when you assume the power of the presidency is who you're going to be. It's just going to be clear to you know far more people. And I think the same is true in pandemics, in, in these moments of, and not just pandemics, but moments of societal stress. That everything that's true about your society and everything that's true about you, nothing is going to change. But those things about you, good and bad, are going to be revealed. So if you are a nurse on an ICU unit who cares about your patients and is diligent in the practice of your profession, that is going to be revealed. That is going to be very evident. If you are a profiteer who's willing to make money off of human misery, you are going to go on Amazon and buy all of the hand sanitizer and sell it at a marked up rate. That's true of individuals. It's also true of societies. If a disease, if a pandemic finds a society with an intact and functioning public health system, and a cohesive society where people trust their officials, where they trust each other, 
that is the society it's going to find. And you become New Zealand or South Korea. If a pandemic finds a society that is fractured, where there is distrust, where the public health system is neglected or in decay or in some way, that is going to be revealed. That's not going to change in the face of the pandemic. There's simply not time to change it. And, you know, the the Greek word that we get the word apocalypse from, apocalypsis, uh, means unveiling. Something is apocalyptic if it's being unveiled. And I think a pandemic is a really apocalyptic moment in the sense that it's a moment that unveils and reveals what's already extant in a society and in a human soul. I think that one of the most important things that my students can learn from studying Thucydides is the extent to which virtues that we take for granted in ourselves as Canadians, our tolerance, our recognition of diversity, our civility, our generally high level of decency, which makes us the envy of so many of the societies in the world, how much those virtues are themselves situational, how much those virtues themselves depend on reinforcement, Um, depend on a situation in which those virtues are useful for those who practice them, um, you know, rather than, you know, than useless or harmful. So I I think that we, you know, shouldn't be so proud as to think that we are fundamentally better people um, than the Athenians of Thucydides' time, um, because I don't think that that's true. Um, I think that we're very fortunate, you know, not to be subject to the stresses um, to which the Athenians of Thucydides' time were subject that we would actually behave better um, if we were subject to those stresses, I somewhat doubt. Thucydides points out how easily we forget how dependent we all are on the stability of our bodies and minds to make a broader society work. Nothing so sharpens his or the reader's awareness of the extreme fragility of human society, how vulnerable it is to the most profound disruptions, um, and how these can strike, you know, even when sailing appears to be the smoothest. I would say, above all, how much the ordinary decency on which society depends is not to be taken for granted, but depends on the social context which was so radically subverted by the plague. And again, another way to put this is that the plague disclosed our our central dependence on the body and our expectations of of the future for our body, how much when healthy we take our bodies for granted, therefore take our own permanence for granted, at least our own permanence for a foreseeable future, and again, how much society depends on our doing so, how much the stability of society depends on that that hopeful presumption. The stability of society. It's the revealing of hidden things. The bodies of those dying were heaped on each other, and in the streets and around the springs, half-dead people reeled, reeled about. 
see what was to become of them. Started losing respect for laws of God and man alike. The plague raged in Athens through the summer of 430 BC, with people dying inside the city walls by the thousands. Some estimate that up to half of the population died of the plague. The lands around them were ravaged by the Spartan army, the crops destroyed, homes ransacked. Surviving Athenians started looking for someone to blame and eventually directed their anger towards Pericles. For decades, he had been the leader of the Athenian people, and Athens had been a democracy, so the leader of the people um, enjoyed the foremost place in politics. So by the time the plague began, he was already old by um, ancient standards. He was about 60, and in fact, he would die of the plague. In the pages of Thucydides, um, I would say, Pericles represents democratic leadership at its best. Above all, in his ability to retain the people's trust through good times and bad. Thucydides stresses this rather than any particular policy as Pericles' greatest achievement. In fact, I think that Thucydides has questions about a lot of Pericles' policies, but he has the greatest admiration for Pericles' ability to command the trust of the people. They now began to criticize Pericles, holding him responsible. And in complete despair, they turned their anger on Pericles. And he came to them and spoke. I have been expecting your outbreak of feeling against me, and I know the reasons for it. And yet he makes it clear to the fuming mob before him that their anger is misplaced and they have to rise above. I hold that a city confers greater benefits on its individual citizens when it is succeeding as a whole than it does when citizens flourish individually, but the city fails collectively. A man can be doing well in his own affairs, but if his country is destroyed, he nonetheless falls with her. On the other hand, if he is faring badly while his country is faring well, then he is more likely to come through safely. Therefore, since the state can bear the misfortunes of individuals, but each one of them is incapable of bearing the state's misfortunes, it must follow that all should rally to the state's defense, and not do as you are now doing. In your distress at your own misfortunes, you are sacrificing our common security. I am the object of your anger, but I think I'm as good as anyone to know what has to be done. You must therefore put aside your private sorrows and concentrate on securing our common safety. Sure, Pericles was trying to inspire Athenians to pull it together so they could defeat the Spartan enemy, but his speech also holds an important message about the need for all individuals to focus on the strength of the community. Pericles had urged the Athenians to overcome their concern with themselves, with their bodies, with their wealth. Um, and to devote themselves entirely to the service of the city, and to live entirely for the sake of the reputation that they would gain through that service to the city, that reputation for all time to come, that would come as having been citizens of the finest, strongest city ever. However, as a result of the plague, they're completely overwhelmed and are now desperately concerned with themselves, you know, with their lives, their bodies, their families. So Pericles meets them where they are 
you know, thereby giving you a fundamental lesson of democratic statesmanship. He begins with that concern for themselves, not understood very narrowly, with simply the concern for self-preservation or survival in very adverse circumstances. And he uses that as the basic building block out of which he reconstructs their allegiance to the city. So he does this wonderfully artfully and in the, in the course of just a few paragraphs. You know, but the basic argument that he makes is, you know, you have to realize that your well-being as individuals really depends on the flourishing of the greater society. And therefore, you've got to take the big picture. You, you've, you've got to keep the you know, well-being of the society foremost in your thoughts. People of action and ambition will want to emulate us, and those of them who fail to match these achievements will be envious. Hatred is short-lived, but the brilliance of present deeds shines on to be remembered in everlasting glory. Fix your minds, then, on achieving that fine future to come. What do you think? Are we able to rise above and do what's right for the collective? Results are mixed. (laughs) Thucydides, in giving his encomium of Pericles after Pericles dies of the plague in 429 BCE, says that under Pericles, the Athenians did well because he was able to lead them, um, not just give in to the wishes of the people, but to set out a vision that he could convince them to, to, to follow. The difficulty with the leaders after Pericles, Thucydides says, is that they were more on a par with one another and therefore were battling constantly against one another. And that kind of partisan wrangling where each side is trying to flatter the people to get them on their side is a stark warning for us now, I believe, because I think as soon as something that Thucydides describes as being a series of facts, this is, this is what happens when um, this disease comes, and this is what happens to people when this disease comes. As soon as a series of factual observations about the challenges we face become weaponized by people struggling for power against one another, I think we lose what Thucydides himself, not just Pericles, but Thucydides himself was trying to provide us, which is to a starting place of truth. And that's becoming a great casualty, uh, at least in some countries that are facing the coronavirus today. Namely, like Brazil. <laughs> For example, yes. Brazil, the United States of America, other, other places too. If we could draw some key lessons from, from this episode in time, what key lessons should we take from this plague, both as individuals and as a collective? I think one lesson is a kind of lesson of humility. Uh, what we see in Athens is an extremely proud and successful political community brought low by something they hadn't anticipated, they hadn't prepared for, uh, and that proved to overwhelm them. We, uh, as human beings, uh, focus on actions like war, where, where we think we can strategize and gain advantages and so on and so forth. And we probably spend too little time thinking about 
how we can be overwhelmed by natural forces, whether they be epidemics or climate change-related disasters or concerns about flooding or deforestation or whatever it might be. Those aren't the enemies that, that we're used to glorifying as, uh, or the, the battle against which we are not used to glorifying, but they can end up being of vast importance. I think Thucydides helps us to recognize with due humility how delicate our cultural accomplishments are, whether they're a sense of national unity and pride or a matter of our political institutions. He thinks these things are bulwarks against some sorts of downturns, but um, uh, potentially not very effective bulwarks against others. And what lessons should our 21st century leaders take from this episode and then from this speech as well? Well, from the career of Pericles, again, above all, the primacy for a democratic leader of maintaining popular trust and the Periclean example of how one can maintain that popular trust without simply descending um, into this game of competitive fomenting of mistrust, right, which is characteristic of populistic democratic politics, where you lack a strong leader, a strong leader who is able to maintain popular trust, you, the, the dynamic of democratic politics does tend to be this, this dynamic of populism. And that would be Thucydides' greatest reservation about democracy and why he thinks you really need an outstanding leader like Pericles for democracy to flourish. In this particular case, again, I would say that it's this extraordinary ability that Pericles has to meet the people where it's at and putting the plague in perspective, if you like, as a terrible episode, but nonetheless just one episode um, in a much longer story of the glorious history of Athens. And it seems to me that this too is one of the lessons that we can draw from this, right? That this too will pass that terrible as the plague was and much more terrible than our own, certainly in terms of the death rate and the disruption of every aspect of life, it wasn't the end of the world for Athens. If Thucydides were to be beamed into Los Angeles, where you are right now, and look around, what do you think he would say? First, I think Thucydides was an essentially curious guy. So one thing I think he would be amazed by is what we've managed to accomplish with science in such a short time. The idea that through science, we can conquer this disease. I believe that as someone who believed in human reason, he would be amazed at the same time, I think he would also recognize, I think he would recognize the people as he recognizes them, right? Which is reasonable, it's not, you know, having this possession of reason, but also behaving so poorly. Like he would not be impressed by people fighting over toilet paper, obviously. One thing that is true of Thucydides, and I think true of the ancient ethos more generally, was when you're called on to duty, you don't complain. I have a sense that Thucydides would not take well to a lot of our whining about what we've been called on to do in this moment. 
sacrifice on behalf of your community, on behalf of your country, was seen as a as an honor, not as some sort of punishment, as it were. And what advice would Thucydides maybe give us today? I think the advice that Thucydides gives all the time, right? Which is do your duty, have faith in the social contract, even when it's breaking down, guard your own honor, and remember history is watching you. Thucydides wrote what he saw as like the first kind of quote-unquote academic history in Western history. And he did it because he recognized his, his education in the epic tradition taught him that events pass, diseases pass, wars end, but you, your actions will be remembered. They might just be remembered by your neighbor or your children, but they will be, be remembered. And that is important. You know, the ancient Greeks did not have a real belief in immortality. There was kind of this idea of the underworld, but there was really no belief in like salvation as it's understood, for example, in the Christian tradition. They believed that your immortality was the remembering of your name and the remembering of your deeds. And you saved or damned yourself based on how people recounted your deeds. You are listening to Lessons from the Plague of Athens, produced by Nikola Lukšić. Mix and sound design by Tom Howell. Thank you to all of our guests. I'm Clifford Orwin. I'm a professor of political science, classics, and Jewish studies at the University of Toronto. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Berlin Bochum Thucydides Center in Germany. My name is Catherine Kalaitis, and I'm the resident scholar at the National Hellenic Museum in Chicago, Illinois. My name is Kinch Hookstra, and I'm the Chancellor's Professor of Political Science and Law and an affiliate professor of Classics and Philosophy at the University of California at Berkeley. Head to our website, cbc.ca slash ideas, for more on the guests and their work. Thank you to Lyndon McIntyre for reading the part of Thucydides and to Chris Howden for reading the part of Pericles. For our excerpts, we drew from a 2013 edition called Thucydides, The War of the Peloponnesians and the Athenians. It is edited and translated by Jeremy Minot. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Web producer, Lisa Ayuso. Senior producer, Nikola Lukšić. Greg Kelly is the executive producer of Ideas, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.